Forge family, last week we plunged into 2 Corinthians 5 in the section of Paul's epistle on the new covenant ministry. Paul wrote to the Corinthians of the day when his and our physical person will be struck down. He used a tent metaphor and a Greek word that specifically spoke of dropping a tent into the dust. Now he was quick to add that when we pass from the natural world to the supernatural, then there's waiting for us a building in heaven, which spoke of being clothed with an eternal body. To see all this come to pass, the Father has given us a pledge, a promise, an engagement ring in the person of Holy Spirit so that we can know, we can know that his promises will come to pass. Paul also wrote of being of good courage. Now, that's a parallel phrase to his double reference in chapter 4 where he said, we do not lose heart. And again here in chapter 5, he doubles his emphasis on always having good courage. That, that's a mark of the, the new covenant ministry because the rest of life is hard. <laughs> Lastly, Paul wrote of the judgment seat of Christ before which we are obligated to all stand at some point in eternity. Now note, we will be among those raised from death or caught up into the clouds to be with Jesus prior to this judgment event. Each of us will be standing before the Lord, and what we did in the body with our faith in Christ will be shown to us and then tried as if by fire. Now that's a metaphor, we don't know what that is, okay, but... Paul continues with gold, silver, and precious stones. He said, those are going to survive, whatever that test is. And wood, hay, and straw, that would be consumed. Now, this imagery is to help us focus on the now. It is an encouragement, not a fearsome thing. See, we will get the opportunity to, to display before the Lord everything that we, we tried to do or actually accomplished by Holy Spirit in the kingdom of God. And that could be in some private place in a closet where you pray. That could be daily of joy, the business of walking through life with joy and faith. Or it could be on a bigger stage. You know, that's, that's determined by the Lord's gifting in you and, and doors that he opens. But it, it doesn't matter. There is fruit from that. Okay? So let's pray. Mighty God, before whom we all stand, we bow before you now. And ask for your grace to be poured out on Forge Church again. We would be a company of believers that listens to and obeys the word of God and the prompts of Holy Spirit. Lord, soon we will stand before you to display what your spirit has drawn forth from each of us. For that, we raise the hallelujah. There's more ahead, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's turn to your 2 Corinthians text, chapter 5. We'll start in verse 11. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade men. And we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. So in the immediate context here, the interpreting the phrase of Knowing the fear of the Lord um, causes us to look back, just briefly, to the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, when we face the Lord and we encounter him personally, 
eye to eye, face to face, and there will be awe and wonder and reverence and the fear of the Lord, but not the terror that he has and can incite in unbelievers. Then Paul followed with the phrase, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, Paul could say it another way. He could say, we persuade men by our own integrity. And that would be true. And, and persuading men in, in just saying, here's the gospel. Here's what Jesus did. And with our heart, we want you to know this and embrace this. Regardless, it's hard work. Yes, indeed. There is content to the phrase, the fear of the Lord. In Hebrews 10.31, it says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that assumes you don't know him. Okay? Paul does not soft-pedal the message here. We encounter the love and the grace of God through Christ. Nevertheless, his love and grace do not let us run amok with flagrant sin. My first year of ministry, I lived with three guys. One of which was employed at a major local department store. Actually, it's a national department store. Okay, he he worked in a, uh, alongside a number of us in a in a large Christian camp in the uh, Redwood Mountains, Red, down in the in the uh, Santa Cruz area, and uh, we got to know him and his testimony. He loved Jesus. Now, uh, Bob was surrounded on that job in the display department in that department store by men who were artistic, creative, and gay. He himself had been savagely treated by his siblings, and he'd been regularly targeted by bullies in high school. When he joined the Air Force, he was assigned to an air base in rural Turkey. There was no Christian fellowship, and out of his loneliness, he became vulnerable to a senior officer's invitation to use his weekend leave time to party together. Ultimately seduced... Bob rushed back to the Lord, but still carried deep wounds and shame. The job scene in the department store led to weekend parties in San Francisco and another fall into homosexuality. This was unknown to me and my other two roommates. But when Bob collapsed in front of us in tears and it all came pouring out, you know, we, we listened, we embraced him, and we prayed for him. The following Sunday, he went with us to church. And he was profoundly touched by the, by the message from the preacher. In fact, he, he had gone after the service and hunted up that preacher and made a lunch appointment uh, so they could get together the following day on Monday. So Monday morning, I drove Bob all the way to work. And I, he was peaceful. I asked him, how are you doing? And he never answered me. He was just silent. And we got to the curb outside the door of the uh, uh, employee entrance, and um, he jumped out of the car, but he turned back, put his head in the car, and said, I do not know what God is going to do. Shut the door, went on his way. Four hours later, the preacher showed up on the curb, picked up Bob. They drove a block or two, turned right, and a truck ran a stop sign, struck just front of the passenger side door on that vehicle. The door popped open. Bob tumbled out 
under the wheels of the truck and was instantly killed. I saw that preacher later that day and he was he was sobered. There was very little damage to his VW bug to the beetle. But he said that when he had picked up Bob and they had started talking in that in that minute plus, a couple of blocks worth of travel and then a right turn, in that short period of time, they had already begun talking about the Lord. <clears throat> To be present with the Lord when the Lord intervenes in the conversation is a sobering thing. It can be a fearful thing. But Bob has preceded us into heaven. The business of being manifest to God is what... uh, is that we are seen and we're discerned and we're known by God as we live and move and express our being. And likewise, that transparency was also fully present, fully known before the Corinthians. They knew what Paul and the ministry team were all about. See, that's another mark of that new covenant ministry. And honestly, it's a rare thing in the pulpit. I know a man here on the coast who's a pastor, and he was taught in seminary, don't you dare make friends with anybody in your congregation because you'll get betrayed. If you need a friend, find him in Florida. Talk to him on, on Skype or Zoom or whatever it is. Don't make, him, don't make friends in your own congregation. That's not New Covenant ministry. Verses 12 to 13 say, We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're of sound mind, it is for you. The phrase, take pride in appearance, is literally take pride in face. Those who opposed and hounded Paul were ultra-committed to their outward expressions and influence. They emphasized oratorical power, rhetorical eloquence, impressive display, and flagrantly waved their resumes around so that anybody could see how many people had openly commended them. Now, if you recall, when Samuel was sent to the home of Jesse to anoint one of Jesse's sons, the Lord had to step in and step in and rebuke his prophet Samuel because prophet the prophet had been focused on outward appearances, not on the heart. This that same sense is found right here. Paul was a man of the heart. On the outside, he was a short, bandy-legged Jew with little hair and a gross eye disease. Not much there for outward appearance. And Paul himself said, "I'm I'm not a great." Uh, you know, I don't do wonderful things when I preach. I'm not known for my rhetoric. What Paul had was what God had written on his heart. Marcus Dodds was pastor and principal of New, New College, um, and it was in Edinburgh in the late 1800s, and he said this, The ironical tone in this passage is unmistakable, yet it is not merely ironical. From the beginning of the Christi- of Christianity to this day, churches have gathered round men and made them made their boast in them. 
too often it's been a boast in face and not in heart. In gifts, accomplishments, and distinctions, which may have given an outward splendor to the individual, but which were entirely irrelevant to the possession of the Christian spirit. The same thing is seen every day on a small scale in congregations. People are proud of their minister, not for what he has in his heart, but because he's more learned, more eloquent, more naturally capable than other preachers in the same town. Those are the words of Marcus Dodds 125 years ago. Same today. In the last decade, I have been in a meeting where there was a 10-minute introduction, I mean florid, floral, you know, floral introduction to this evangelist who had come to minister. And at the end of the introduction, the words were, Here, tonight, is the man of the hour, a man of grace and power through God who has chosen to work mighty miracles through him. It was like a drum roll and spotlights all shining on the evangelist's face. In less than 24 months, that man had been disqualified from ministry because he believed what people said about him. Paul follows with a phrase that indicates that we are charged with, that he himself had been charged with being crazy, out of his mind, bazonkers, loco, mashugana, versigen, you know, mad. But then, so was Jesus. His family was convinced that Jesus had lost his mind. Some commentators attribute Paul's appearance of out of his mind stuff to the signs, uh, the sign gifts, tongues, interpretation of tongues, miracles, healings, and the fact that he had visions. The word beside the words beside ourselves in Greek comes from the word ecstasis, and we draw our word ecstasy from that root. Paul's response is simply that if I'm crazy, it's for God. If I'm of sound mind, it's for you. Verses 14 to 16 follow. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though he was known, we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. The Greek word for control is syneche, and it speaks of being shut up to the only one way forward, and no ability to turn to the right or to the left. And we might say being hemmed in. It is the love of Christ for Paul, for his team, and for us that sets loving boundaries upon us and upon them. It is further focused by the rest of the verse. The one who died for all is the very one who loves us. And his love for us took away our sin on the cross with him, wiping away sin's control over us. We died to our old man, our flesh, our old ways of living for ourselves. 
having died with him, we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died on our behalf. The benefits of this arrangement are awesome. They're astounding. We had our sin nailed to the cross and now no longer are enslaved to ungodly desires. Now we are called sons and daughters of the king who died for us and rose, lifting us up with him to new life. David Garland says it this way. The conclusion, quote, Christ died, therefore all died, unquote, only makes sense if Christ died as the proxy or substitute for all humanity. But humans did not select Christ to die for us. God did. Christ's submission to God's will was a supreme act of self-giving love. This is heady stuff. This is Paul's high doctrine of Christ and the sacrifice he made for mankind. A.T. Robertson said, The high doctrine of Christ and his atoning death carries a correspondingly high obligation on the part of those who live because of him. Selfishness is ruled out by our duty to live unto him who for their sakes died and rose again. Paul, who used to be Saul of Tarsus, arch-Pharisee, had judged the person and words and works of Jesus and found them to be less than compelling. He set about to savage those who embraced their dead and supposed risen Messiah, all to purge this out of Judaism. His subsequent conversion, being stopped and struck from the saddle of a light that exceeds all light and a voice that only he heard, is, is you know, was uh, um, prior to his conversion. He's face to face with the risen Christ. And after his conversion, he discovered that one died for all, therefore all died. And that statement split off of him his life of scholarly study, his life of religious discipline, his life of zealous practice, now discovered to be worthless as a means by which to come to know God personally and to come into his presence. Now, Paul says, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, not even, you know, excuse me, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. What, he, what we had to offer in the flesh, completely, un, completely unacceptable to God. When we came to Christ, all that stuff got dropped and is in the process of being dropped. Even Paul's view of Jesus, formed in the crucible of reports on the life of Jesus, of hatred of the followers of the way, that all has been dropped. Paul says, we no longer know Jesus as he was in the flesh. Now, why is that? Because he is the risen Messiah, the Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us. Now Paul sees men and women in regard to their standing in Christ or their opposition and their, if they've turned away from Christ. Verse 17 summarizes this in a way. He says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he 
is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. To have died with Christ, to have our sins nailed to the cross, and to have been raised to a new life in him. That begins a transformation process in us. Paul says, the old things have passed, have passed by. Not only did we drop them and leave them by the power of Holy Spirit. Now, we studied in Colossians when we studied the business of of passing off the old and, and, and putting on the new. Taking off the old, putting on the new. Here, Paul says, if you are indeed in Christ, drop the old. And when it comes at you again in your walk, in your journey, the stuff that you dropped, if it comes at you again, you learn to literally, you pass it by. Then Paul uses the word, behold, which speaks of a rapidly shifting scene Something that happens in a flash. And what happens is that we are made new creations. It's not our emotions or our physical issues or muddled memories that are changed. We all, all of us is made new. And the grammar indicates that not only did this happen in the past at a completed action. It is a continuous present and future power. And, and it has results to this day. We are made new, and we are being made new. This week, I heard a story about my mom. I'd never heard that story before. I never knew that she hated to wash dishes. (laughs) But one day, she gave that to to Jesus. And from that day forward, she joyfully engaged in that after-meal chore. It was a transforming thing. She had learned to drop her frustration and bitter resistance to that chore and embrace Jesus in the standing at the sink as they washed dishes together. All right, Forge family. Is there anything that you dropped in your coming to Christ that keeps coming at you on your journey? Is there anything that you need encouragement and counsel regarding how to leave it and pass on? Second, what newness of life keeps coming up as you walk with Jesus? What new things are you discovering and rejoicing in? What things are you finding that you've not yet dropped? New life awaits. Let's encourage one another in our walk so that we, as a company of believers, are all made new. Let's pray. God of transformation in Christ. Lord, that's a title, Lord. I don't think I've ever heard that title put to you before, but you are the God of transformation in Christ. We humbly ask for your presence as we walk this journey toward heaven. We've seen substantially, you know, we've been substantially changed. We've been made substantially new. But as we age and as life gets more complex, we discover that we are doing things in the old way. Mm. Responding to you in the old way. Lord, what we want, please, Lord, is to receive the new. The new creation that is in us. And we want to learn how to love on you in a fresh new way 
Keep preparing us, please, Lord, for heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.